This is a social journalism for health podcast from the team at Crokey News. Hello, I'm Kate Carrigan and I'm coming to you from the land of the Gadigal and the Wongal people of the Aura Nation. I pay my respects to ancestors and spirits of this land and elders of the past and present. I dedicate this podcast to the deadly young leaders and generations of the future. May we all be well together. This time on Crokey Voices and as part of the Rural Health Justice Series, a special look at the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. 30 years after the release of the Commission's findings in 1991, incarceration rates are higher. First Nations people represent 30% of those in custody, though they are just 3% of the Australian population. And people are still dying. This is PM, I'm Paul Murphy. Today, Mr Justice James Muirhead handed down the first findings of his Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Governments are going to seriously look at providing alternative places for custody for those people who are who are not criminals but who happen to be intoxicated or need to be taken into protective custody of somewhere. They need to provide alternative arrangements and look at ways in which the Aboriginal people can participate in uh, I suppose, the discipline of their own people. Because of the Muirhead recommendations and the understanding of the problem, it's very clear now that we ought to be decriminalising, for example, drunkenness. The then Attorney-General, Lionel Bowen, and before him, former Commissioner Pat Dodson. But despite those calls, a lot remains to be done. And since that inquiry into 99 deaths between 1980 and 1989, more than 470 other men, women and children have died in custodial settings, including those locked up for public drunkenness, an offence only recently wiped from the Criminal Code in Victoria and still deemed a crime in Queensland. As National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service Chair Priscilla Atkins said in April, the recommendations are still gathering dust while elders, mothers, fathers, siblings and children keep dying. So what is happening? Crokey Voices is going behind some of those statistics to explore the impact of systemic racism and the failure of the health and coronial systems to care for people in custody and investigate deaths in a way that supports relatives and lays the grounds for a better system where cultural awareness is embedded and health is delivered in a timely and compassionate way. Associate Professor Megan Williams is a Wiradjuri Justice Health Researcher and Educator, member of the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare National Prisoner Health Information Committee and Assistant Director of the National Centre for Cultural Competence at the University of Sydney. Geoffrey Amato is a Wiradjuri man from Wellington in central west New South Wales who is using his struggle with addiction and incarceration to inspire others with his More Cultural Rehabs, Less Jails program. And Dr Peter Malouf, a Waka Waka and Willy Willy man, is Executive Director of Operations with the Aboriginal Health and Medical Research Council of New South Wales. I ask them first to reflect on their feelings three decades since the Royal Commission. For me, I think it's that the current prison health workforce 
and corrective services workforces are not skilled at working with Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. They get very little training, whether that's at university or TAFE or on the job. And also the officers responsible for designing that workforce and implementing policies, uh, the public servants, they too get very little training or support and there are no partnerships or very few partnerships with Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander organisations to lead the way about uh, how to implement those recommendations of the Royal Commission and other policies that we've got. So for me, it's down to the workforce and a lot more needs to be done for that workforce to be ready to implement those recommendations. And Jeff, what about you? How do you feel seeing what's happening 30 years down the track? Um, yeah, my name is Jeff Amato and I'm a proud Rotary man. Um, I want to acknowledge the country I'm on today, which is darker young country on the Central Coast. Just my input to it. We just haven't got the right support in place. The system is failing our people big time. And I can only speak on my own lived experience when we're going into the system and when we're coming out of the system, nothing's changing. We're not getting the right support when we are being locked away. There's so many factors around why deaths in custody are, are still rising. Nothing's changed from when we are put into custody to when we're released. We, we might come out and we might look a little bit healthier. We might look a little bit more, you know, a bit of weight on us. But other than that, that's all we come out with. We're still coming out homeless. We're still coming out with, you know, no ID. Nothing changing and from when we're going into but when we're released. And, and that's the big, big issue now is... Well, when we're coming out, we don't know how to live in society like the so-called normal people do. We're, we're, it's just a revolving door. It's, it's just in and out, in and out. I think the system needs to really have a good look at itself and say, well, you know, maybe maybe we've got to start, if, if, if we've got Indigenous people that fall under the NDIS scheme, if we've got, um, let's start getting them their housing before they're released. Let's get their, all the... Because a lot of our people are coming out and we fall under the uh, NDIS scheme, but it's just too many loopholes that jump through to be to get on it to get the right support. So um, if, they, if they're fair dinkum about wanting to close the gap for, for Indigenous people, I, I really think they have to reinvent the, the wheel now and, and start thinking, well, we're, we're talking about jails supposed to be rehabilitating Indigenous people, but at the end of the day, it's it's our statistics are going up, so I can't see how it's rehabilitating our people. It's not not really working at the moment. What about you, Peter? What what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I think I share the same sentiment as both um, Jeff and Meg. Is that I think the system itself um, moves away from the principles in which was mentioned in the Royal Commission around the importance of self determination. And that um, Aboriginal people are at the centre of designing solutions and systems that are culturally responsive to our cultural needs. There is a significant way to go in terms of rebuilding um, that self-determination with us. And I think that's due to the fact that we have, you know, systems that are still, you know, systemically racist. We have police Mm. officers that still hold stereotypical views about Aboriginal people and that's embedded in, you know, police training and education about us. And as well as, you know, we look at university systems that teach law and criminology, um, there's no talk about race. There's no talk about how systemic racism can impact Aboriginal people coming into the system. 
And there's no mention about cultural safety as a tool to help with rehabilitation and supporting mob going to the system. So I think we have still, you know, a long way to go. And I think there needs to be grassroots mob at the table, having conversations with the the ministers that make the legislations, get us at the table to have the conversations to make sure that we embed the 339 recommendations that were handed down 30 years ago. We know our solutions. We know how to fix the system. Listen to us. Let us have that voice that builds on the principles of self-determination. Jeff, you were in and out of jails for around a decade. What was your experience of having access to health services, especially in rural settings? The proper um, professional help, it it wasn't there. The stuff that I see that goes on in jail is, um, it it would make a glass eye cry. You know, I, I see the health system in there and the right support in there is is nowhere up to scratch where it needed to be for our people. I've seen our people in in the system, you know, being discriminated against with the officers, you know, like um, people saying then, you know, I've seen our people getting transported to hospital and and once we're in hospital, we're still looked down on by staff in in hospitals. And I I felt it myself. And I, I just think the way the system's designed it's not broken. I don't think it's broken. It was built that way for our people. It's a sad reality, but that's the way it was built for our people. It's just getting worse and worse. And I've been privileged to travel Australia the last four years to so many remote communities in Australia. And every community I've been from the top to the bottom sideways three or four times now. And every community I've been into of a radius of 200 k's, there's, there's prisons, there's jails. In a lot of the communities I've been to, if you want help, you've got to travel two or three days to get it, especially out at Wilkenya Way and all them remote communities out there. And, and that's what I said. If if we do a crime, we've got a bed in jail that night. But if we want help and we want support and we want to get rehabilitation, you know, we've got to wait 10 weeks to get it. And, and we're lucky if we get it then. So the system in, in that sense, the health system, it's just so far from um, getting it right for our people. And it must lead into more and more feelings of despair and helplessness. It does, it does. And, and, that's, what I, and that's what I say as well, that you know, um, people have got to understand the reason why our communities are broken and dismantled is because that one person suffering from the drug and alcohol mental, mental health um, issue, it's not just affecting them people. Um, it, it, it ripples down to so many family members. It ripples down to their kids, their mums, their dads, their uncles, their aunties. And that's why, you know, our, our statistics outweigh a lot, a lot higher than any other culture in our own country. And I advocate for more cultural rehabs, less jails. If we was to get, you know, the, the government on board or the feds to say, well, let, let's give this a go. And, and to be honest, my opinion, I think the government's falling least a billion dollars a year short around, around this topic. And Meg, you've been studying Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in jails for a long time. As Jeff mentioned there, there's lots of people battling with mental health illness, also chronic health issues and those with disability as well. Is there a profile for a typical First Nations person behind bars? Probably the profile really is people who've been dispossessed from country within family and that overwhelming grief and loss of country and of language and culture often but also someone who's 
you know, being over-policed, hasn't had the right legal representation, the right level of re- legal representation, is someone who'd be able to get healthcare in the community if they weren't Indigenous, I'd say. Often people could be diverted from the criminal justice system into the health system if only those police and the magistrates as well as social workers knew and had the linkages with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations in the community that they could take Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to rather than to the lockup. You know, we know that over 80% of our people have drug, alcohol and other health issues. And why we actively facilitate the lockup of people with health issues, that's criminal to me, that we don't provide better care in the community. You know, these prison rates are a sad indictment on our community. We keep blaming the individual Aboriginal person occasionally or you know often we'll say it's a family issue but that's tinged with blame as well and that it's a community issue and these communities are problematic but to me it's the mainstream community setting it's the mainstream Australia who watches on while this happens in our own front yard you know it's not our backyard anymore it's not hidden from view these problems are becoming so much more frequent and thankfully more addressed in the mainstream media, even if the mainstream media doesn't always get it right, and sometimes that's extremely damaging to me only when mainstream Australia chooses to address this properly will we see action. We've already got good enough recommendations from the Royal Commission. We've already got good enough policies that should enable us to do trauma-informed care legislation we've got that should enable us to divert people from the criminal justice system into other alternatives. We don't have enough uh, residential rehabilitation and that's not only for drugs and alcohol. Yes, I think that's urgently Mm -hmm. needed across all of Australia But it's also about trauma recovery to me. All of us Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people are are always carrying multiple uh, traumas that compound with the grief and loss and real frequent experiences of racism as well. I experienced racism myself through being excluded from committees, through being talked over or uh, the extra work I have to do as well as the more direct forms of being spoken to and discriminated against. So that's just, there's just um, that shining the light on the mainstream who are the 97% of the workforce and the population. And they're the majority power holder here with the power to create change if only they could get organised to do that and um, not keep putting a burden on the minority of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people to have to keep on saying this is a problem and here's how it needs to be fixed because that's corrosive in and of itself, that exhaustion that we experience and the pressure we're under to have to continually talk about these things because, you know, deaths in custody, for me, it's a family issue. It's someone in my own family. It's not just an academic exercise and and a job to me. Each and every time I think about those recommendations of the Royal Commission, I think, gosh, what if they had been in place? And that young man my age would have still been here 
you know, the bigger risk too is that when we don't have those mainly young fellas, when we don't have them in our communities, our communities are vulnerable and they're vulnerable to things like land theft and being robbed of resources. You know, part of me does have that, you know, really deep worry that it's all too convenient for us to leave our fellas locked up and, and now to see mothers, Aboriginal mothers being locked up and the state doesn't care enough for mothering and the mother-child relationship or the parent-child relationship to want to keep that together. And we know that that's underscored by so many people in prison having had the experience of being in juvenile detention and prior to that in out-of-home care. So it is ongoing disruption by the state and that's where the questions need to be asked about who's enabling that and who's enabling the poor resource allocation uh, for the actions that are so clearly identified and, and just nailed it. You know, more rehabs, less jails. And uh, it's as simple as that. Well, let's talk about that. Jeff. your program, More Rehabs, Less Jails, tell me about it and how that would make one of the differences you'd like to see in place. Yeah, well, um, my business is called More Cultural Rehabs, Less Jails. And just going back, elaborating a little bit on what Meg was saying there earlier, our people, we're being locked away for the minimum crimes, you know, for the petty crimes are getting a lot more jail time than a lot of people that are pedophiles around Australia. The, all these people that are doing really bad offences are non-Indigenous people. Our people are getting locked away doing more time over the, the minimum crime than they're getting for the, the serious charges, you know. And, and and I've been lucky enough now is to, to present my journey and my presentation to people that can make change. I've been a keynote speaker at a lot of magistrates' conferences and district court magistrate conferences as well and, and I said 80 to 90% of our people are reoffending under the influence of drugs, alcohol or mental health issues. I said there's a register maybe we need to dig a bit deeper and, and maybe try to fix the problem and, and I said it's not that Jeff. She said the reason 90% of the time we, we lock these people away is because we've got nowhere else to send them. If there was places where we could say, well, listen, you've got to do a program around and it's a cultural-based program, she said we'd send them there, but that's the thing. We've got no choice or we've got no opportunity but to send them to jail. And that's what I said as well. I said, um, well, you know, I, I present my story on, on how I healed as an Indigenous man myself and, and broke the chain of addiction, alcoholism and incarceration. For me, I can't heal in a cell. Uh, you know, I can't get well in a cell. I was privileged enough now over nearly 12 years ago to be introduced to a cultural-based rehab on the Central Coast where I, I found who I was as an Indigenous person. I found out a lot about my culture. I, it was a place where I could deal with my trauma. It was a place where I could deal with all, all the issues and underlying issues from a kid growing up. And that's where my journey started and I, and I know what works for our people um, because I lived it. I get it, we need jails, don't get me wrong, you know, I'm not saying abolish all jails but what I am saying is when we want help and when we want, we're want, we seeking help we shouldn't have to wait up to two to three months to get it because we've only got a small window period to help an alcoholic or an addict. 
it's got to start listening to the lived experience and having them around the table now and when the big decisions are getting made. Because don't get me wrong, I get it. The governments and the feds and all these people are chucking all this, splashing all this money around Australia and trying to close the gap and trying to do this. But what they're doing, they're sending it, they're, they're funding the wrong services. They're telling non-Indigenous services how to work with Indigenous people. That's not going to work. You know, what we need is we need our own people, healing our own people. That's where the connection comes in. That's where the trust comes in. Because our people are not going to walk into these non-Indigenous services and sit in a debt hole smelling room and, and, and saying, I know how you feel. And I know it's, it's not working. And it hasn't worked for over 200 years now. So what they've got to start doing is sort of having the people that are lived it involved now and, and making decisions, helping have a bit of input on the decisions. So, because I was in Canberra last fortnight and I was speaking to the uh, ministers for, for correctional service and um, the shadow ministers, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander shadow ministers and about two others. And I said, you know, it's not just about the drugs and alcohol and why our people are reoffending. There's so many factors. It's around the, the, the homelessness, it's around the NDIS, it's around transitioning them back into society. Because they're expecting inmates to come out of prison um, if they fall under the NDIS scheme to to go and jump through 20 loopholes to get on it, to go online and apply for housing. And a lot of our people wouldn't even know how to apply for housing online. You know, they've got to start reinventing the wheel and, and start to live the, live the experience. And the Aboriginal Indigenous Doctors Association says that, and as you're talking about, the social determinants of health, housing, employment, education... All of those things right. all feed into that. Exactly. And, and I'm dealing with some people now back in my own country in Wellington. I'm doing some consultant stuff there. And they're being released from prison and they're, they're coming out with their literate. They're, they're, they they probably do fall under the, the NDIS scheme. They're homeless. Like, they've got no qualification. They've got no ID. So they come out and they go, well, what do I do? I don't know what to do. I'll do what I've always done, and that's crying. So that's where now they've got to start transitioning inmates. They've got to have all this NDIS staff, the homelessness, all of it ready to go when they're released. If, if, they're, if they're fair income about rehabilitating, and that's what the prisons are for, start being fair income and stop tippy-toeing around the real issue and let's, let's get down to business. And, Peter, what would you say about that? How big is the lack of these sorts of services? It's a real issue and that they're, they're just not there for people. So let's get back to the fact that we as Aboriginal people, we know what our solutions are. You know, we work tirelessly with whoever will listen to us to give us funding to be able to develop resources and programs. You know, I work for the Aboriginal Health and Medical Research Council here in New South Wales, a big body, and we know that Aboriginal community-controlled health services provide a plethora of services to support to our communities, whether it's through prevention, early intervention or comprehensive care. But we know that um, our services are restricted in accessing prisons or being provided funding for post-release of people coming back into community. We know that when prisoners do get released from prisons, the disease progression is at the later end. And so, you know, we pick them up where, you know, they've developed cardiovascular disease or diabetes or they're coming out and reliving trauma again. So we're, you know, we're providing psychosocial support. 
And I suppose there's um, even it, less of that in rural settings. You know, people are in a worse situation there and that's where a lot of people are. Yeah, that's right. That's the issue that we have at the moment, particularly in Western New South Wales, where we know that government funding is based on the population size which determines funding outputs. And so our services out in Western New South Wales are struggling because they want, they're picking up um, mob that are coming out of the prison which then is overburdening their service, but they do it because they know that the importance around putting Aboriginal people um, in providing support. But we don't get money for it, right? So we want to lobby government for greater investment in the community-controlled health service to be in the justice system and to support our mob whilst they're there. People are still dying in custody. They're obviously, as you've all been discussing, they're not getting the kind of care they need. There aren't the programs in place where people should be diverted maybe rather than going into custody in the first place. And then there's the, the ones who get very ill and maybe terminally ill in prison and the palliative care services. What are the issues there you see, Meg, as really impacting on mob? I think that there's a question to ask about, um, you know, valuing human life as a criminal and then valuing human life when someone's a criminal and they're dying. And the sort of very deep question that we need to ask ourselves about why we value criminality over dying. And in light of having policies in New South Wales that say they will respect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures, they'll work holistically and they'll develop partnerships, um, we, we have this situation where we'll, we will accept that it's okay for an Aboriginal person to die in prison. And that's if we know that they're unwell, say with cancer or another um, illness that they're not expected to recover from. And there is legislation, the Section 160, that can be applied for in New South Wales and it's sometimes called compassionate release. So there's that sort of word there that suggests that maybe we will value the dying person and their rights over someone who's been criminalised. But in reality, we also see that the palliative care staff numbers in prisons are very small and the mainstream health staff in prisons just don't have that training and skill in palliative care. And that's palliative care just to improve the quality of life of someone who's unwell, let alone the end-of-life care when it really is known and identified in people's charts by doctors and nurses that the person um, is at risk of dying. You know, why we cannot get a better system to use that Section 160 and get people out of prison before they die, I don't know. Because in my understanding of my Wiradjuri culture, it is not okay to die alone. It is not okay to die without affairs in order, without passing on knowledges to family members without uh, understanding how family members are going to fare after the death of a loved one. To add on top of that, you know, someone dying in custody and then having to go through the coronial process. You know, while on the one hand, I agree that each and every death in custody of an Aboriginal person should be inquired about by the New South Wales coroner, that process is brutal for an Aboriginal family to go through. 
even mm. on the one hand, that's really important for a family to understand what happened to their loved one. But of my reading of thousands of pages of case notes recently, the information so scant that's added to them about an Aboriginal person's health and well-being, and it goes back to what Jeff was saying earlier, you know, just not being respected. It comes through in the case file notes that the health service providers and clinicians make, and let alone any information about meeting cultural needs. And these are needs that Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people in prison have the right to be met according to the Nelson Mandela rules of the United Nations that they have the right to care in prison that's equivalent to care in the community and the, the risk, ongoing risk to families' well-being when they know their loved one died in prison alone without anybody calling the family, without any person sitting there holding that person's hand while they were gravely unwell and worried for their life that they were going to die and that they were going to die alone where's the compassion and the other barrier to that section 160 is about um, country, you know, for mob not being in the city often. But in the, the family story I know, there were arrangements made for palliative care and end-of-life care in a really small country town where the local health district did step up to the plate and also the nursing home and palliative care staff in that town and other volunteers in that town. So this one particular fella, everything was lined up for him to exit prison and to go back to his own home country as is protocol and need and right, but the actual prison system couldn't help together to, um, to enable that to happen. And in my understanding, that's due to short staff and the under-skill and lack of training of those existing staff to really know what it means, um, sort of spiritually and culturally, for someone to die on country and, and to meet a lack of regard for that. So why we think that this is just a case from the last few years, why we don't think this is going to happen again, nothing has changed, like, um, like Jeff and um, Peter have said. And we can only therefore but expect this will happen again in the future mm. if there's no change. And because the, the incarceration rates are so high, 30%, representing just 3% of the community, there's significant numbers that yeah. this is happening to. A lot of families are being impacted. Yeah, and I think the figures are going to grow as prison rates grow and as the population ages. And we know that the um more times an Aboriginal person's been in prison, the more times they're likely to go back to prison and the longer the sentence they're likely to incur and to serve. So we, we can expect that people will get older in prison and, and will, if they're going into prison with multiple health issues and the nutrition is really questionable and dire in some centres as well as stress, which, you know, erodes health and wellbeing and then the lack of the program to improve health and well-being, that, you know, those are the multiple factors mm. that add up to extreme risk, um, in my view. And, Jeff, were you aware of this during your time in detention, people dying from chronic disease, people dying of terminal illness, not being able to have their loved ones with them? Yeah, I've, I've experienced it a couple of times, you know, um, hearing the squad run into the, into the yard, into a, a cell next to me and, 
and then being locked out for a couple of days because of the investigations that are going on around suicide or, you know, just passing away from chronic illnesses. And, and that's why our people are, are, are dying in the system at high numbers is because we're being sent to the prison with so many, so many issues, so many problems around the health issues, around the drug and alcohol issues, around the mental health space, just so many different chronic illnesses but they're still sending us away and locking us away with these problems. That's why I'm saying is what we need in this country, I think, is to go, well, let's set up the appropriate cultural-based rehabilitation centres so we don't have to use it. If Indigenous people are fronting on a, on a minimum crime, we don't have to send them to jail. We can send them to these places. We can get their, their elf issues up to scratch. We can, you ask a lot of our people, what have you got your 715 done? And they go, what's that? We don't even know the right support is there for us in our own communities. And that's that's a sad reality is a lot of our people being locked away, they're so far educated from, from this kind of stuff, what is so important to us. And yes, like I said when I first started uh, talking on this topic, I've experienced it about three or four times now. And when you're experiencing that in the prison system, going back to Meg, you know, um, dying off country, it's a scary feeling. I couldn't imagine, I could only imagine he's, he's, him or her was starting to go into the the phase of, of passing away from a heart attack or wanting to commit suicide because... You know, we're spiritually connected to our own country. And when we're away and we're locked away in a little cell and on our last leg, I couldn't think of anything sadder, scarier and lonelier than being in a cell by yourself passing away. Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, yeah, I, 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 I have experienced it a couple of times and and it's, it's, it's mentally draining. You know, it's mentally draining when you're being locked in a cell next to that cell knowing one of our people passed away in it last night. One of our, another one of our people have committed another suicide. It just, it affects so many individual people as well being locked away because it brings up a lot of issues. It brings up a lot of trauma. It brings up a lot of stuff that's happened from a kid that we've experienced out on our own country or outside the system. So it's, it's just so many different factors on why our people are, so I, with the black deaths in, in custody and, and the eye suicide rates and, and stuff like that in jail. So th- that's my little bit of um, input on it. Mm. And Peter, from your perspective as somebody on the Aboriginal Health and Medical Research Council, the, the situation with palliative care and these sorts of services, is there any change? No, there's definitely no change, but from our member services, from the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Sector, we have the capability and we are are wanting to be in the space to help facilitate those who are in that stage of uh, end of life, particularly in the prisons, because we know that we can facilitate their connections back to country, back to family. But again, it comes down to resources and funding that we just don't have. Um, to be able to do that. And also, you know, certain jurisdictions across New South Wales prevent us to have access to the prison system. 
Jeff talked about, you know, understanding 715. Our mob access services 715, but those who are in prisons don't know about it or know how to access it. Um, but again, it's just the system or the, the, the justice system doesn't allow us to be in that space. So no, there hasn't been any change. But we urge government to sit down with us and actually have a conversation and work with us to come up with a solution how we can better support our mob. You know, our brothers and sisters that are in the prison system at the moment, they need help and we're ready and we're equipped and want to be in that space. But you know, these barriers are just ludicrous. Yeah. And the barriers aren't all just financial, are they? No, it's not just all financial. It's legislation. It's... Um, you know, credentialing for our um, medical officers and health workers to go into the system. So, you know, you've got systemic structural issues that are preventing um, our community control health services to access prison system. Let's work through those systemic issues or structural issues so that we can start to care for our mob because community controlled health services are culturally safe and responsive and they've been designed by our mob. We can provide the best cultural-based care that they need whilst they're in um, prison. But also think about um, we've got social-emotional well-being programs that can also support, particularly in the court system, as that deferral or diversion going into prisons, access our cultural-based programs that can support and divert people going into the system. So I think it's just we need, to, we need to be sitting down at the table and having these conversations now because we'll get more mob that are going to be more destined custody if these things don't get addressed. And Meg was mentioning the, the impact of the coronial system and often the insensitivity of the way the inquiries are handled into black deaths in custody. The federal Labor politician, Senator Patrick Dodson and Linda Burney, have both called for action to ensure coronial inquests into black deaths in custody are comprehensive, adequately resourced and inclusive of the voices of families and First Nations communities. You would think that would be a given. Well, you would think so. But I think the thing that we have to acknowledge here is that um, it's been, what, three decades since we had the handing down of these recommendations. And during this time, both sides of politics, both Liberal and Labor, had opportunities to implement those recommendations. And so, you know, we're in 2021 and we're still having conversations and we're still seeing people dying in our systems and these things are not being addressed or implemented. So, yes, I acknowledge that Pat Dodson and Linda Burney were part of, you know, um, you know developing these reports, but the reality is about how fair deacon are we to actually change the system. Well, looking ahead to all of you, what would you like to see in place? I'm not going to say in 30 years' time because that seems crazy, but if you could have your wishes, what would you like to see in five years' time? First, Meg. I would see a change to Medicare to enable Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled health organisations to see prisoners, people in prison, in prison, and also to make plans for continuity of care post-prison release. But I would also fund, according to need and good economic modelling, uh, residential drug and alcohol rehabilitation services, those cultural services that Jeff talks about, and also other types of healing programs mm. and better fund 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled health organisations to work with people in prison and post-release and their families, but it all has to have staff training that goes along with it. And that includes the staff training of the mainstream government workers who are going to be the ones that would roll out resource fund and have to do the reporting on all of these things. At the moment, they can also be a hindrance. So a lot more work needs to occur with that mainstream workforce training. The other thing I would say is a Commonwealth-funded program to enable Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled organisations to do programs in prison and to evaluate that. I'd also make sure in relation to the coronial system that there's an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander telephone counselling line for families going through the process, not just the main phone number, but an actual um, you know, cultural care and that there's follow-up of families throughout that um, coronial process because it's an extreme risk to their health and well-being and the uh, young children and generations that have to witness their parents going through things and grandparents. So they're probably my three key asks, I suppose. Okay. And you, Jeff? Yeah, well, um, I'm, I'm just echoing maybe a little bit off Meg there. Um, my personal opinion would make change in this country is the heavily funding services uh, funded to the right services in communities, the cultural aspect communities where our mob's going to walk into them doors. Um, and not, not non-Indigenous people trying to tell communities how their program should be run. That doesn't fit well with me. It's got to be community grassroots driven and it's got to be funded to the right services where our people are going to walk in them doors and feel safe and feel connected and feel no judgment because I'm, I'm up there doing a lot of services, a uh, bit of work now in my country and the communities. A lot of the services are heavily funded there, but our people are not using it. They're not using the support they're funded for. So that would be probably my number one. My number two would have to be what I advocate for is a lot more cultural rehabs, less jails, where if, you know our people are committing crime under the influence of drugs and alcohol, mental health, all these other... The right helps there, not just the easy first-choice prison. If we fill the set up 50 cultural-based rehabilitation centres around just New South Wales, we're going to start seeing the gap closing, and I can promise that. And I suppose number three, it'd have to be having the lived experience involved in mm-hmm. the decision-making now. The people that have lived it and, and, and have come out the other side and excelling in life and, and advocating and the grassroots people that have lived it, you can't get any greater power than someone who's lived it and breathing it and, and preaching it. And There's no greater power than that. You can have all the qualifications in the world. You can have the eye degrees. And, and I get it. Yes, we need them kind of people in our corner as well. But start listening to the people that have lived it. There's no greater power than that. So that would be my number three. Thank you. And Peter? Yeah, I guess my wish would be that, one, we change laws and legislation around the criminal justice system that allows uh, cultural-based responses um, based on local cultural protocols within communities, allowing us to have uh, greater self-determination about how we penalise our mob that have faced the, the, the justice system. So I think changing legislation is, is key. 
My second would be about the increase and enable us, um, able Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations to go into the justice system to provide better health care for our mob. And my third point would be about breaking the cycle for our younger generations because we know that we're seeing more young people going to the youth detention centre and I think it's because of the fact that you know it's all centred around what Meg talked about was about family unification so how do we actually support families that are living through intergenerational trauma, disconnect of culture? How do we get our young people back on track? How do we get them to maintain their cultural identity and belonging in our communities so they don't end up into the system? And so I think it's important that we start to look at some preventative and early intervention strategies around family unification. And just finally, how important to all of that is raising the age? Definitely. Massive. It's, it's massive. It, it has to be done. I can remember I went to the detention centre down down in Canberra and, and, and went in and delivered my presentation to the kids. And I can remember a young girl coming up to me at the age of 11 she said, Jeff, uh, do you know how old I am? And I thought she was about 14. She said, I'm 11. And, and that day, I can still remember my brain, it went straight to my little daughter. And my daughter's nine. And I'm thinking, she's only two years older than my daughter. You know, and at the age of 12 and 13, you know, boys and girls, they start to develop and they start their bodies start to change and do different things. And I was thinking... And this poor little girl at the age of 11 is in a cell by herself at night when, when her little body is starting to deform and change in different ways and hormones. And, and I was thinking, how sad is that? I worry about racism being front and centre in this um, because this is something that overwhelmingly discriminates against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the, that the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people haven't been taken seriously. Uh, trying to raise the age and why do we have decision makers who are not of our cultures in any position of authority at all to make decisions. Uh, we have to take the over-representation of Aboriginal mm. people seriously. That should mean we have an over-representation of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people in decision-making positions about this, about what is right for our young people and what families need. And the blame on the families is just revolting. That comes through in the mainstream media. We don't see those you know, non-Indigenous people speaking back out against that and valuing and cherishing our Indigenous cultures. So we have to ensure that we keep discussing racism and uh, discrimination. And the fact that those things are against the law in this country and that we've got very little recourse, uh, but we've got all of the symptoms. And I think this the over-incarceration of, of young people is a symptom of that also that we um, need to critique and we need to push back on, on criminology and on the legal profession who have enabled, who have facilitated these laws to actually exist in the first place and who haven't done the work to um, redress them and certainly haven't done the work across discipline to really closely work with public health. It's a respect that health decision that this is extremely damaging and it's an investment 
in exactly the same kind of risk of exclusion from society in, in subsequent generations unless there's really deep healing, you know, like Brother Jeff has um, talked about. But again, we know that later on we'll have to mop these issues up and there's not going to be, you know, services there right when people are ready to use them. There's a lot of work to do for the mainstream to take responsibility for what is happening. That's it for Croaky Voices and our special look at the legacy of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, 30 years since the release of its report as part of Croaky's Rural Health Justice series, putting a sustained focus on issues being raised to mark the 30th anniversary. If you like what you're hearing, please follow, like and share and consider subscribing to Croaky News for just $60 a year to help us bring you the health stories we love to share with you.